You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the November edition of Heart Sounds. This is the podcast where I tell you about some of the biggest news in cardiology each month and give you a chance to listen in on what some of that sounded like for reporters who cover this beat for TCTMD. Earlier this month, we had Laura McEwen at the Viva meeting in Las Vegas. Then I myself, along with Yael Maxwell, Todd Neal, and Michael O'Reardon, shipped out to the American Heart Association annual scientific sessions in Chicago. News from both of these meetings dominated TCTMD this month, and I'm going to spend today's podcast recapping some of those big stories. Let's get started. Viva is the Vascular Interventional Advances Conference held in Las Vegas. The meeting celebrated its 15th anniversary this year, and as I mentioned, Laura McEwen was on-site reporting for TCTMD.com. Laura found a mix of things in this year's program that she elected to write up, including several of the late-breaking clinical trials. This included 12-month results from the vernacular study, testing a self-expanding nitinol stent as a treatment for venous obstructions in the iliac and femoral veins, as well as a breakdown by sex of the Illuminate study results, which tested the Stellarex drug-coated balloon in the setting of peripheral arterial disease. Outside the late breakers, Laura covered a session that delved into the COMPASS results in PAD. COMPASS came out last year at ESC and, as you may recall, looked at the use of rivaroxaban in the setting of CAD and PAD. Just last month, based on COMPASS, the FDA approved an expanded indication for rivaroxaban that would include patients with stable atherosclerotic vascular disease, including PAD patients. At Viva, experts debated a range of issues stemming from the FDA decision, including the difficulty of getting their minds around COMPASS, given that many of their PAD patients are already taking DAPT. Many speakers seem to agree that adding rivaroxaban to the mix will need to be a highly individualized decision, with patients being brought into the discussion. A separate issue is whether this expanded indication might have an impact on the CREST-2 trial, which is comparing revascularization to best medical therapy in patients with carotid stenosis. According to Bill Gray, the COMPASS trial results will likely not be enough to persuade CREST-2 investigators of the need to add rivaroxaban to the medical therapy arm. I hope you'll check out all of Laura's coverage from Viva. We've posted a wrap-up video from this year's meeting as well, in which Sahil Parikh of Columbia University and Juan Granada of the Cardiovascular Research Foundation review some of the highlights from the meeting. You can find that video along with news coverage and slides on our conference page. In the meantime, here's a snippet of the conversation between Drs. Parikh and Granada. So, I mean, it's difficult to really pinpoint which one is going to be the one that is going to open up the market, but for sure, I mean, the possibilities are you know, endless. I mean, you're going to have a very prolific uh, field in terms of research and, and clinical data in the future. Well, it's an exciting time in the space. I think that uh, the, the different approaches that are being brought to bear for patients with little or no option is, is amazing. Uh, and I think that uh, obviously with our preclinical science and clinical translational science that's, that's uh, clearly uh, alive and well, uh, we, we look forward to having new options for these yeah. patients. And, and we need now, you know, one of the things honestly is uh, academic support, government support, reimbursement support, because that is going to help the field to move forward and, um, you know, develop new technologies and have the proper research to validate these technologies in the future. The bigger meeting this month, of course, was AHA, which was back in blustery, beautiful downtown Chicago. 
For the first time, the AHA trimmed back the meeting to three days, which really felt a heck of a lot more like two days, since all of the biggest news and late breakers were crammed into the Saturday and Sunday. The AHA has always been a meeting where new clinical practice guidelines are released, and this year was no exception. At AHA, attendees were treated to new cholesterol guidelines, jointly published with the ACC. Reporter Michael Reardon covered the new guidelines for TCTMD, and his story includes a wide range of reactions to the guidelines, which, for the most part, seemed pretty well-received. One typically outspoken cardiologist called this iteration a more thoughtful approach than we saw with the 2013 guidelines. Roger Blumenthal of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore is one of the co-authors on the new guidelines. He took to the stage at the end of the AHA session to sum up the major changes in these latest guidelines, things he predicted would be making headlines the next day. So what will be tomorrow's headlines? The first is that numbers matter. We focused in on uh, thresholds. Lower LDL cholesterol is clearly better with proven therapies. We focused in on high-intensity statin therapy and aiming for at least a 50% drop in LDL cholesterol. We looked at the concept of a threshold of 70 milligrams per deciliter for proven non-statins. Azetamide would be considered first, a PCSK9 inhibitor would be considered second. In familial hypercholesterolemia, we uh, used a threshold of 100, and clearly if a uh, high-potency statin did not get our LDL down to uh, 100, we would then think of azetamide. And then finally, we also focused in on the limitations of the Friedewald method. And I congratulate my colleagues, uh, Dr. Seth Martin and Dr. Steve Jones, for their leadership in this area. Next, we focused in on the better guidance for shared decision-making as part of the risk discussion. This was a key feature of the 2013 guidelines that this document clearly improves. We are now much better able to separate very high-risk individuals from very low-risk individuals. We now have the concept of risk-enhancing factors that help us select the higher-risk patients. And then finally, the selective use of coronary artery calcium now has a 2A class of recommendation, and the strength of that evidence is much stronger. The clinical trial that made the biggest splash at AHA this year was Reduce It. This randomized trial of a prescription strength omega-3 fatty acid formulation showed that it reduced cardiovascular events in statin-treated patients with high triglycerides and either established cardiovascular disease or diabetes plus risk factors. As Todd Neal reported for TCTMD, through almost five years of follow-up, the primary MACE endpoint occurred in 17% of patients randomized to icosapent ethyl and in 22% of patients taking a placebo. According to Deepak Bhatt of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, who presented the results at AHA, that works out to a number needed to treat of just 21. Bot took pains to explain all the reasons why this prescription strength omega-3 succeeded in this trial where supplements have failed. I'll let you seek out Todd's story if you want to get that nuance. One factor that is still being explored in the wake of Reduce It is whether the use of a mineral oil in the placebo formulation might have had the effect of blunting statins, thereby leading to worse events in that group. That possibility was raised by Stephen Nissen of the Cleveland Clinic, who pointed out that LDL cholesterol crept higher in the placebo-treated patients over the course of the trial. Nissen, it should be noted, is leading another trial of a prescription strength omega-3 in a similar patient group. 
Carl Oringer of the University of Miami, Florida, however, who was the discussant for Reduce It at AHA, was much more sanguine in his remarks. Have a listen. To summarize, Reduce It supports the position that icosapent ethyl is a safe, well-tolerated agent and reduces the likelihood of cardiovascular events in stable, high-risk hypertriglyceride patients who are treated with uh, moderate or high-intensity statins. Unlike other drugs shown to be effective as add-ons to statins, it appears to work via a mechanism that is unrelated to upregulation of LDL receptor expression. Thus, we now have three randomized controlled trial proven therapeutic options that show cardiovascular uh, risk reduction benefit in patients who are high risk. Clinical trials examining cardiovascular disease outcomes in statin-treated hypertriglyceridemic patients who receive prescription omega-3 fatty acid preparations are being done at this time, other agents of the omega-3 category, and also there are other new fibrates that are being examined also in the hypertriglyceridemic patient population. We look forward with great anticipation to gaining more insight into ways in which we can further reduce cardiovascular disease risk in this highly important patient group. If Reduce It came home from Chicago with a win, another omega-3 trial did not enjoy the same ride. Several of the big late breakers at this year's meeting came out negative, among them the long-running VITAL trial. VITAL was a National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute-sponsored study with a 2 by 2 factorial design that looked at both vitamin D and marine N3 fatty acids for primary prevention of both cancer and cardiovascular disease. I remember back when this trial first launched in 2009. There was lots of excitement back then about vitamin D especially, following a schwack of observational studies suggesting a link between low blood levels of vitamin D and cardiovascular disease, raising hopes that boosting vitamin D intake through supplements would translate into less CVD. Unfortunately, this nearly 26,000 patient trial presented by Joanne Manson of the Brigham and Women's Hospital came up empty-handed. After a median follow-up of 5.3 years, no differences were seen in the rates of major cardiovascular events according to whether or not patients had been taking vitamin D versus placebo or omega-3s versus placebo. No differences likewise were seen between groups for new cancer diagnoses. In one intriguing finding, investigators did see a reduced risk of myocardial infarction with omega-3 supplementation and signals for several other endpoints that were not pre-specified, including total CAD and PCI. There was also a signal of an interaction between omega-3s and race. To get the full details here, I hope you'll check out my story on VITAL on tctmd.com. The trial discussant for VITAL was Jane Armitage from the University of Oxford, who was principal investigator for the ASCEND trial, presented at ESC back in August. As you'll recall, ASCEND found absolutely no benefit of daily fish oil for cardiovascular outcomes. Discussing VITAL at AHA, Armitage took pains to remind the audience that VITAL solidly missed its primary endpoints for both cancer and CVD, and that any secondary or exploratory findings need to be taken with a big grain of salt. Someone may need to tell that to the Brigham and Women's Hospital press office, which put out a glowing media release highlighting the, quote, dramatic impact of omega-3s on cardiovascular disease in African Americans and neglected to emphasize that the trial had, in fact, been negative overall. Here's Armitage. Drilling down into an overall negative result, uh, risks 
spurious uh, results being, um, being highlighted, but as you heard, there was a reduction, as you can see, in total MI, but no overall effect on uh, invasive cancer. So I think in conclusion, this is a large and well done study, studying uh, supplementation in a wide range of previously healthy individuals and the primary result is that we don't see any overall benefit on the two key primary endpoints for either of the factorial designs and I think this is a robust result. Um, I think by contrast the uh, results for the omega for on total MI um, and the subgroup analyses really need to be treated with uh, with caution and I think are much less robust and as Professor Manson said we'll need uh, confirmation. A number of other important trials from AHA are worth mentioning. The declared TIMI58 trial tested dapagliflozin, a selective sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitor in patients with type 2 diabetes and high cardiovascular risk. The trial met one of its two co-primary endpoints. Specifically, the trial was neutral for MACE, but did show a significant reduction in CV deaths or hospitalization for heart failure with dapagliflozin. Experts who commented on the results for TCTMD's Todd Neal stressed that DECLARE is in keeping with other SGLT2 inhibitor studies and supports the concept that this type of drug has a class effect when it comes to reducing heart failure hospitalizations in patients with type 2 diabetes. Another heart failure trial also delivered good news at AHA. This was Pioneer HF. This study tested the use of an ARNI combining valsartan and secubitril in patients with acute decompensated heart failure. The drug is already a proven treatment for patients with stable HF and reduced ejection fraction. As Eric Velasquez observed at AHA 2018, Pioneer HF supports a strategy where an ARNI is initiated much earlier than continuing the agent long term. Find the Pioneer HF results on our conference page. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the other piece of guideline news to come out of AHA this year. Although this kind of guidance tends to get a lot less buzz than things you can treat with drugs, like high cholesterol and hypertension. On that quiet third day of AHA 2018, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services released new physical activity guidelines for Americans. This is only the second kick at the can for these kind of guidelines, the first physical activity recommendations having been published back in 2008. This time around, the guidelines continue to urge the same amount of weekly physical activity for adults, but have changed the way in which people can accumulate these active minutes. While the HHS still recommends 300 minutes of moderate-intensity physical activity each week, or 150 minutes of vigorous-intensity physical activity, the agency has abandoned the previous recommendation that specified that only blocks of at least 10 minutes of activity counted toward achieving that goal. Now adults are simply encouraged to move more and sit less throughout the day, and every minute counts. Do check out our full story on TCTMD for the details, but let me first highlight one of the most interesting things to come out of this AHA session. Admiral Brett Girois, the Assistant Secretary for Health at the HHS, presented the updated physical activity guidelines at AHA, and he had some sobering numbers for the audience. Take a listen. Inactivity causes 10% of premature mortality in the United States. That means if we can just get 25% of inactive people to be active and meet the recommendations, almost 75,000 deaths would be prevented in the United States. 
on an even larger scale worldwide. If 25% of those same people who are inactive started moving and met the guidelines, more than 1.3 million deaths would be prevented. The United States currently has low level of adherence to the guidelines. Only 26% of men, 19% of women, and 20% of adolescents meet the recommendations. This has health and economic consequences for the nation. With nearly $117 billion in annual health care costs attributable to failure to meet the aerobic physical activity recommended in the guidelines. Lack of physical activity is also a threat to our national security because obesity disqualifies nearly one-third of American youth aged 17 to 24 years for military service. When we move, we have better cardiovascular health, we are stronger and less susceptible to disease, we feel better, and we actually think better too. That is that for the November edition of Heart Sounds. Please head to tctmd.com and click on the Conferences tab to find all the news and other content we pulled together from both the Viva and AHA meetings. I haven't touched on the many other developments in cardiology that we covered this month that had nothing to do with either AHA or Viva. The best way to keep tabs on breaking news in this space is to bookmark our homepage at tctmd.com. Follow us on Twitter at tctmd, or if that's just too much, subscribe to our news brief. That's a twice-a-week email bringing you headlines from all the work produced by our in-house reporters. I cannot believe that the festive season is just around the corner. All the more reason to check out the details in those physical activity guidelines. Here at the Heart Sounds Podcast, we're already planning ahead for our special December edition. Instead of picking stories from the past month, then begging the reporters to share their audio with me, I'll once again be turning the microphone on my team of Crackerjack cardiology reporters, asking them about their favorite stories for 2018. And meeting season has not quite ground to a halt. TCTMD's Todd Neal is heading out to the World Cardiology Congress next week. Stay tuned for news from the WCC in Dubai. If you've got comments on the show or news tips to share, drop me a line. You can find my email address via my bio on tctmd.com or look for me on Twitter as Shelley Wood too. Thanks for tuning in to Heart Sounds. 